Good morning again. We now turn to the living and abiding Word of God. If you have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, would you turn to Matthew chapter 9? We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 17 this morning. We're currently in this short section in the Gospel of Matthew in chapters 8 through 9. And if you remember, there's a pattern in these two chapters. Matthew shows us a collection of three of Jesus' miracles, followed by Jesus' teaching on discipleship. And then three more miracles from Jesus, followed by another teaching on discipleship. And then again, three miracles of Jesus. Matthew is interweaving who Jesus is, that he is God in the flesh, with what it means to be his disciple. Today, we are in the second of those teachings on discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. Two weeks ago, Ryan preached on the first of those, and Jesus' focus was on the great cost of following him, that anyone who would come after Jesus must give up his whole life. Today, Jesus focuses on the great welcome that comes in the call to follow him. Jesus' call is not just to the morally upright or to the well thought of, but it is an open and gracious call to sinners to come to Jesus. So let's hear God's word this morning, but before we do, let's go to him and ask for his help, that he would open our ears to hear his word and open our eyes to see him. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know and love your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear your word and come to Jesus. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed." But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. 
This is the word of the Lord. We see when we look at this section as a whole that it is really one event. And that event prompts two questions that come to Jesus. And so we're going to look first at the call of Matthew in verses 9 through 10. And then we're going to look at that first question that prompts Jesus to talk about what it means that he has fellowship with sinners. After that, we'll look at verses 14 through 17, looking at that second question that prompts Jesus to talk about this connection between feasting and fasting. So first, we see the call of Matthew in verses 9 and 10. Let's read those verses again. It says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. This is an intriguing part of this book because it is the point in the story where we finally meet the author. Matthew, one of the twelve apostles, is the writer of this gospel. And here, he is telling the story of when Jesus called him to follow him. We learned first that Matthew was a tax collector. A tax collector would have been a government employee responsible for collecting taxes. And while there isn't anything necessarily wrong with collecting taxes, tax collectors had a reputation for over-collecting. Think about Zacchaeus, another tax collector whom we meet in Luke 19. One of the key moments in Zacchaeus' repentance is when he promises to pay back all the people whom he has defrauded. Tax collectors were crooks who lied about how much they were supposed to take so they could make themselves rich. And if that weren't enough, they were working for the Roman government. Remember, Rome had only conquered Israel somewhat recently. They had violently overthrown their rulers, and now they were the foreign oppressor over Israel. Tax collectors like Matthew worked for Rome. So they were not only thieves, they were traitors. This is Matthew, a traitorous crook. And Jesus comes to him and says, follow me. This shows us that Jesus does not discriminate in his call. He doesn't simply show up on elite college campuses looking for the best and the brightest. He doesn't just show up on Capitol Hill trying to persuade the most powerful and influential to join him. No, he goes to the highways and byways and calls the people who no one else wants. If you are here today and you think that you aren't good enough for Jesus... You think he would never want you because you have sinned in big ways. Or you feel like your life is a long story of one bad decision after another. If that is you this morning, then consider the call of Matthew. Jesus came to a sleazy, traitorous, social outcast and said, You, I want you. Come and follow me. Friends, Jesus makes that same call to you today. And notice, Matthew didn't even go looking for Jesus. 
He wasn't searching him out. He's not on some sort of religious quest. No, Jesus pursued Matthew. He came and found him sitting in his tax booth, just minding his own business at work. Just as he'll say later to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus doesn't sit back and wait until you come looking for him. In fact, the Bible tells us that if he did that, no one would ever come seeking him. No, Jesus comes pursuing you even when you want nothing to do with him. He is seeking after you even now and saying, come, follow me. Whatever your past, whatever your track record, whether your sin is known to everyone or hidden deep inside, Jesus calls you this morning, come to me, follow me. And the amazing response we see from Matthew is immediate obedience. Remember, in the last story that Ryan preached, Jesus had to argue back and forth with these disciples who had excuses for why they couldn't follow Jesus just yet. But here, Matthew leaves everything and follows Jesus right away. This is a picture of true repentance. Matthew knows he needs Jesus, and so he doesn't let anything hold him back. He follows him. And the next thing that Jesus does is what is going to drive the drama of the rest of this passage. Jesus sees Matthew, this well-known sinner, and he goes to him and tells him to follow him. And then Matthew obeys. But the next thing Jesus does is not simply put Matthew down as a notch in his belt, hand him a list of ways to grow as a Christian and walk away. He doesn't congratulate him that he has now punched his ticket to heaven and move on to the next potential convert. No, Jesus has fellowship with Matthew. He stays and he sits and he eats with him. Verse 10 says, Jesus reclined at table in the house. But both Mark and Luke tell us that this is Matthew's house that Jesus has come into. In that ancient culture, not much different than today, having a meal with someone in their home was a sign of intimate fellowship. It was a sign of friendship. And this is the part of the gospel that we can so easily miss, and it absolutely robs the gospel of its power. Jesus does not simply want you to make a one-time decision for him. He does not simply want to get you to say that you believe a couple of things about him and then pray a prayer. No, brothers and sisters, Jesus saved you so that he might have fellowship with you. You were saved to have fellowship with God, communion with God, relationship with God, whatever you want to call it. Jesus wants you to be with him. He says that is what salvation is. In John 17, as Ryan just read, in a prayer to his father, he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is intimate, relational knowledge. He says to his disciples in John 15, abide in me, and I in you. He says this to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It's one thing for Jesus to talk to sinners or ask them to follow him or even to die for sinners. He does all of those things. 
But you must know that Jesus wants to be with sinners. He wants fellowship with you. No matter what your past is, no matter how unwanted you think you are, no matter what you did this week that you are ashamed of, if you trust in Jesus, he has fellowship and relationship with you. He doesn't hold you at a distance like a child holding a smelly sock. No, he pulls you in close like a mother holding a needy toddler. Jesus wants to be with you. But notice also what Matthew does here. Matthew obeys the call of Jesus. Jesus comes into his house to have fellowship with him. And Matthew decides that he doesn't want to keep that fellowship to himself. So he throws a feast and he invites all his friends. He doesn't keep this joy to himself. He invites his friends to join him in this fellowship with Jesus. And this is actually instinctual for most new Christians. I've talked to many of you in here about your story of coming to Christ. And many of you will attest to one of the things that you did immediately is you started telling all of your friends about Jesus and inviting them into the joy that you had found in Him. You longed for them to know Him, and so you began to invite them into this fellowship. Come and see what I've found. Come know His forgiveness. Come know His joy and His hope. Come and meet this Jesus. It's us who have been Christians for a long time that have to have our arms twisted to tell people about Jesus. But new Christians are often natural evangelists. They want their friends to join them in the celebration and the joy that they have experienced. That's what Matthew is doing here. But guess who a tax collector has for friends? Other tax collectors and other sinners. Those are the people who come to join him at this feast. Those are his friends who want to come and meet this Jesus. And it's this that causes the beginning of Jesus' problems. Because in the midst of this party, this feast, the Pharisees see what Jesus is doing. Now, I mentioned last week that this was the first time that we had actually seen the scribes interact with Jesus. And the same is true here. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that we actually see the Pharisees interact with Jesus. And it will set a trajectory for all his other interactions with them. They see him at this feast, and they ask his disciples a question. Let's see again their question and Jesus' response in verses 11 to 13. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees were a group within the Jewish religion and society. They didn't have political power in the way that the Sadducees did, but they were known much more for their strict adherence to the law of Moses. And so, they have been watching Jesus. 
We saw them come onto the scene even in Matthew 3 when John the Baptist was baptizing in the wilderness. And it seemed like they were there just to check things out and make sure no one was doing things that they would disapprove of. And that's what they seemed to be doing as they followed Jesus around. And they saw him call Matthew, this man who had done truly horrible things. And then they see Jesus go into his house and sit and eat with him and all his other sinful friends. And they can't take it. They go to his disciples and ask, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, why are they asking this question? Probably for the same reason that you or I would ask the same question. They care a lot about God's law. And here are all these people who break God's law. That's what it means to be a sinner. Let's not misunderstand what Matthew is saying. He isn't using this term theologically like the Apostle Paul does to say that we are all sinners. He is talking about people who are known for their sin. They are known in that society for constantly disregarding God's law. They don't live by it. They don't even care about it. And the Pharisees see Jesus eating with these people and they think, doesn't he care about God's law? And it's important that we go down this rabbit trail because we don't want to soften this passage, but we also don't want to make it say something that it doesn't. Jesus absolutely cares about God's law. He just said four chapters ago what he thought about God's law. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He said that if anyone relaxes even the tiniest part of the law, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He said it's better to pluck your eye out than it is to lust. He said if you hate a brother in your heart, that's equivalent to murder. Jesus absolutely cares about God's law. We should not misunderstand what he is doing here. He is not giving approval to sin. He doesn't call Matthew as a tax collector and then say he doesn't mind if he keeps right on stealing from people. No, he calls him to follow him so that he can transform him into a new creation. Jesus always accepts us where we are when we put our trust in him. But praise God, he never leaves us where we are. The good news of the gospel includes the good news of sanctification. That Jesus will grow you in holiness and love, and delight in the things of God. We know all that is true from so many many other places in scriptures. The Pharisees are wrong in their assumption that Jesus spending time with sinners means that he approves of how they are living. And Jesus makes that clear in his answer. He tells them exactly why he is eating with tax collectors and sinners. Verse 12 says, But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We've heard from the very beginning of this gospel why Jesus came into the world. The angel in Matthew 1 said, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The whole reason he came is to save sinners. 
Jesus compares sin to physical sickness in the first thing he says. Why is he sitting and eating with these sinful people? Because they need him. He breaks the metaphor in the last statement. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If Jesus came into the world to save sinners, then what is the one qualification for coming to him? That you are a sinner. Do you see Jesus' logic? You ignorant Pharisees, why in the world would someone sin? Keep me away from them, he says. That's the whole reason I came, to save people from their sin. That would be like a doctor only visiting with healthy people. And while we sit and scoff at the Pharisees for being so dense, how often do we do this even for ourselves? How often have you had the thought, oh no, I I can't come to Jesus right now. I'm just so sinful. Or I've had such an awful week, I cannot believe I did that. There's no way I can go to church on Sunday. Or I can't pray to God right now. Still in the midst of my sin, I need to wait a little while and then I'll feel like I can pray. What? What do we think all of this is for? It's for sinners. It's for those who are sick. It's for the needy. Jesus doesn't say, come to me all you who are put together and think you're doing all right. He doesn't say, come to me all you who are impressive and successful. No, he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came for sinners. He came for the weak and the needy. He came for the selfish and the prideful, the lazy and the lustful, the liars and the schemers. We're going to sing the song, Come Ye Sinners, in a few minutes. Remember that wonderful verse and believe it. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. If you feel the weight of your sin, then praise God because Jesus came for you. He came to save and to heal sinners. Don't deny him what he longs for. But that's not the only thing that we see Jesus saying in his response to the Pharisees. The first and the third statement are about how Jesus responds to those in sin. That he came for the sick and the sinners. But the second statement is about the response of the Pharisees. He says to them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Obedience to God's law is a great thing. We've already talked about Jesus' strong statements about the law of God. Elsewhere he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But as Jesus showed us over and over in the Sermon on the Mount, actions, obedience to God's law is never just about external actions. You cannot truly obey God's law if your actions are right, but your heart is not. Jesus has just shown that the heart of God is to go toward sinners. 
to love those who are in need, to show mercy and compassion to those who are weak and sick with sin. Jesus is condemning the fake righteousness of the Pharisees again. If you think you are obeying God, and you find your heart hard and cold towards sinners, you need to hear the words of Jesus. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Here's a good test for us. Who would be the tax collectors and sinners who would make us ask the question the Pharisees asked? Who, if we saw Jesus eating and fellowshipping with them, would we say, now wait a minute, Jesus. You're not supposed to be with those people. Who would it be for you? Transgender activists and abortion advocates? Maybe neo-Nazis and racists? What about if you saw him sitting and eating with a group of people living a homosexual lifestyle? Or ex-convicts? Or people with a bad reputation? Brothers and sisters, these people need the Savior. The question becomes practical when we realize that Jesus is saying it to the Pharisees. He is chastising them because they refuse to go in and eat with the tax collectors and the sinners. How often do we spend time with people in the sinners category? How often do we even spend time with unbelievers? I know that life is busy. And Christian community is hard enough, and it's harder and harder to rub shoulders with people that you disagree with in this world. But who needs to know about the great physician? People who are sick. Who needs a savior? Sinners. Your neighbors, and your colleagues, and your classmates. Would the Lord make us all like Matthew? longing for those around us who are far from Jesus to know the joy and fellowship of being with Him? Would He make our church a place where sinners feel welcome? And would He give us the boldness to invite them to come to Him, to lay down their sin, and to cling instead to Jesus? On the heels of this answer, Jesus receives another question. This time it's from the disciples of John the Baptist. Verse 14 says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, it seems both by the question and by the way Jesus answers them, that this is not a skeptical question. This is a genuine question from John's disciples. And it's possibly a question born from frustration for them. We're pretty sure that John had already been thrown into prison at this point. And so his disciples surely see this as a sign that things are going bad. Remember, fasting was a picture of mourning, of grief, of recognition that things are not right. The disciples of John are fasting and mourning, and they want to know why Jesus' disciples go around feasting And celebrating. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus uses an analogy to answer 
their question. And the analogy is guests at a wedding party. Would it make sense, he asks, if people came for a wedding party and decided that that was the right time to fast and mourn? No. It would be completely unfitting to fast from food when it is time for celebration. And he said, that's what it would be like if my disciples were fasting right now. While this might seem like a simple analogy to us, it is loaded with meaning. Who is the bridegroom in this analogy? It's Jesus. The Old Testament is filled with imagery of the people of God being like a bride and God himself being the bridegroom, or what we would call the groom. Jesus is saying, that is me. That moment is here. I am the groom that my people have been waiting for. I have not just come to rescue them. I have come to be wed to them. And this imagery shows up again in the New Testament. Jesus is a groom and his people, the church, are his bride. He is saying, I'm finally here. It's finally time for the wedding celebration to begin. And so Jesus asks, who would possibly come to a wedding party and in the presence of the groom himself refuse to eat? And the obvious answer is the Pharisees in the last story. The Pharisees, just like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, stand outside the place where the feast is happening. They stand outside and complain that it isn't fair. Fasting, as we talked about when we looked at Matthew 6, is preparation. It's training our hearts and our appetites to long for God more than anything else. And Jesus chastises the Pharisees again. I am here. The whole point of fasting is to satisfy yourself in God. I am here to be enjoyed and satisfied, and yet you continue to fast. Their fasting becomes a picture of their refusal to enjoy the grace of Jesus. They think they are healthy. They think they are righteous. They are mad at the people around them enjoying the grace of Jesus. It's like when you are on a diet, and you sit, and you watch all these people enjoying cake and cookies and good drinks, and you get mad at all of them. That's the Pharisees. That's what we will see from them again and again. They are mad when they watch people enjoy Jesus. When they watch sinners who could never live up to their moral standards and discipline come and be welcomed by the compassion of God in Jesus. They sit in their sorrow, and they let their anger consume them instead of admitting their own need and joining the feast. But Jesus ends this passage not with a focus on the anger of the Pharisees or even his grace and mercy towards sinners. He ends it with an odd statement about the bridegroom going away and then unshrunk cloth and bursting wineskins. The unshrunk cloth and the bursting wineskins are a difficult analogy. There are differing interpretations by faithful Bible-believing Christians, even by people within our own theological tradition, so we shouldn't be dogmatic about how we interpret this. But my take 
is that this is an illustration of the way that fasting fits into this new era that Jesus has ushered in. Even though Jesus is the same God as the God of the Old Testament, and He has come to fulfill God's law, not to abolish it, He is saying to these disciples of of John that following Jesus isn't like discipleship in the way that they have been conceiving of it. It's not as if they can take the old way that they were thinking about things and just tack Jesus onto it. No, Jesus has brought about a completely new mindset of following God. You are no longer in the period of waiting and preparation. You are in the period of fulfillment. And that changes the way you think about and do everything. Just as Jesus has continued to say, you must lay down your life. You must lay down your old expectations of what you think following Jesus looks like. And listen to him and trust him and live as he now calls you to live. But the other comment that Jesus makes may have been obscure to the disciples, but we know exactly what he means. He says in verse 15, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. This is the first time in Matthew that Jesus has mentioned something about his death, his leaving his disciples. And we know why they will fast, why they will mourn. We know because we fast and we mourn. Jesus ushered in the era of fulfillment and joy. The bridegroom has come. He has come to fulfill all the promises of God. But that bridegroom came to die. He came to save sinners by dying for them. After his death, he rose from the dead and established the beginning of the new creation in this world. But then he left again by ascending back into heaven. And we know that though this life is filled with joy and the grace of Jesus, it is also filled with difficulty and mourning and sorrow. So discipleship in the here and now is discipleship between the first and second coming of the bridegroom. We know the end of the story, but the end of the story isn't here yet. And so we are a people who are feasting and also fasting. We know the grace and joy of fellowship with Jesus, but we also know the continued presence of our own sin. We know the present reality of resurrected life because we have the Spirit of God living in us, but we also know the sadness of death and decay. As Paul says, we are a people who are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing always caring about both the death and resurrection of Jesus in our bodies. This is Jesus' call to discipleship. He calls ruined sinners to come to Him for His grace. He calls those who are prideful and selfish and caught up in death to come to Him. And it is in Jesus, and only Jesus, that we will find true and everlasting life. Would you all pray with me? Merciful Father, we ask that you would help us. We ask that you would help us to see clearly 
that we would see that we are not the morally upright, that we are not the righteous or the healthy, but that we are sinners sick and needy for Jesus. And we ask that you would give us his heart, that we would have a heart of compassion that longs for ruined sinners to know and be known by Jesus. We pray that you would do this in us because we cannot do it in ourselves. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.